Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Ashley Hatch of the U.S. Women's National Team and the Washington Spirit. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, we'll have Chris Whittingham and me breaking down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Ashley Hatch in segment two. But let's bring in Witty from the West Coast in Los Angeles. How are you, my friend? From Radio Row, the famed Radio Row ahead of the Super Bowl. Uh, I've never experienced this before. At the moment, there's nobody here. It's a bit sad, but hopefully as the week goes on, it will be less sad. So, yeah, what's it like? I've never done that myself either. Yeah, so it is rows and rows of tables from various radio stations and digital podcast outlets throughout the country of just people that come here to talk and then they'll like shepherd through a bunch of guests of mostly from the NFL world but from other places as well that are here hawking products and everyone makes content ahead of the Super Bowl and it's a grand big machine that gets hyped up to watch on Sunday so uh, there's major media outlets here and and, and the like so uh, I think I'm the only one here that's gonna be talking about the other kind of football which for in this place, it's the other kind of football. To the world, it's football proper. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to be the only one here who's going to be talking about this kind of football, I think, while we're here this week. I do hope, though, that when you get some big NFL-related guests, you pop in a soccer question. Like, if mm. you get J.J. Watt, you know, married to a professional soccer player, seems to like Chelsea. I believe pretty early in the week we're going to have Zach Ertz on the program. So uh, there you I'll, go. Have to, I'll have to ask him about Julie. You might want to ask to get some news. Is Julie playing this year? Because it sounds like hmm. uh, Angel City saying this week that they have her rights, but she may not play this year. That came after Vladko Andonovsky, the U.S. coach, came out and said she was not called into this roster. We'll get into that later. But... Um, yeah, interesting storyline there, but uh, you don't have to ask Zach, but he's an interesting guy. I like Zach Ertz. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've never met him before, never spoken to him before, but uh, I will certainly get his soccer takes when he's here on, I, I think we're, I think he's coming on on Wednesday, so uh, I'll definitely get his soccer takes then. He actually sent me a DM on Twitter out of the blue, not maybe a year or two ago, asking where MLS teams were in comparison to the English championship, hmm. just out of nowhere. So I feel like the, the the novice question there is where are they in relation to Premier League teams? But the championship, that's like a, that's another level. That, that He's taking on board soccer knowledge. I liked it. I kind of liked it. Well, I hope you have a good time out there this week. I'm kind of jealous. I've never been to a Super Bowl. I would have been a lot happier if my Chiefs had actually gotten there uh, and might have even looked into coming out. I'm going to be out in San Diego myself uh, for work later this week. So... But I hope with all the work you're doing, you're going to have some fun as well. Let's talk soccer, though. Busy weekend after the international window had finished. Africa Cup of Nations final. Senegal wins it, edging Egypt on penalties after a pretty foul-filled 120 minutes of scoreless soccer. But very dramatic penalty. Sadio Mane, who had missed a penalty in the seventh minute or failed to convert it, ends up just delivering one of the great penalties to win a title of all time. And Senegal wins its first AFCON. And and it's been a fun story to follow. And I really do feel like this is the best team in Africa and they've won the tournament now. I agree. I I watched their performances in the quarterfinal and the semifinal. And they're, for me, probably the only team that has put distance between themselves and their opposition on a regular basis at this tournament. As we've talked about before, this is going to be a very open Africa Cup of Nations and it was I think until Senegal emerged and then this final you kind of felt like it's you know it's a it's a final of a major international tournament it could be cagey and cagey it was Um, but I think Senegal are probably the deserved champions of this what I really found fascinating from the final was the video that's gone around of Mohamed Salah 
hand over. I, I just I just bumped the, the the microphone that I have in my headset here. Hand <laughs> over mouth. Uh, you know, talking to his goalkeeper before Sadio Mane steps up. He's like, I see him take penalties in training. I have some intelligence. And then Sadio Mane kind of comes in. It's like, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Like, you know, and, and I thought it was really interesting that now those two guys that competed at that level, Salah's got some secrets that he's trying to expose to his national team goalkeeper. They now have to be teammates again. Come next week or whenever, you know, whenever their rest period is over, to go back and play together at Liverpool again. And if you could believe it, it's Egypt, Senegal in the playoff for in World, World Cup, Cup qualifying playoff, yeah. in March. Mm-hmm. So if you're Jurgen Klopp, this is actually, I think, going to be something you have to manage a little bit. And he's had to do that with them before. I remember when I interviewed Klopp asking him about the details of how he managed that one very public. Uh, piece of tension on the field between Mane and, and Salah. But, you know, these guys are also very close. And they've had a lot more good moments than tension-filled moments. So I don't know how, if it's going to be that necessary to put out fires with this. You know, it, it's one of those things where in the heat of the battle, you know, it, it goes one way. But it's kind of like when the reverse happens where you're playing in opposition teams in club level. I think like Chelsea and Liverpool played just before Edouard Mendy and Sadio Mane were on the same plane to go play together at Africa Cup of Nations. So that happens all the time at club level going into going into international level. There was kind of the stories with England for all those years that like all the Chelsea guys were together, all the Man United guys were together. So, I mean, I guess it does play a role at times, but uh, those two... And those three have done so much together at Liverpool that you'd imagine uh, everything goes back to being copacetic. Although, uh, you do have the introduction of a new element in that mix in uh, Luis Diaz coming in in the transfer window as another forward option. It's been interesting that Liverpool have been a bit forward planning in replacing their front line before they actually either sell or just let the contracts expire on some of those players. Well, and Salah's contract situation is something to mm-hmm. watch because that's something that we, has been discussed a lot in the media over there. But I do want to say about Senegal, I think not only is this the best team in Africa, I think if they can get to the World Cup, they've got the talent to make a run. And they were in 2018, if you remember, the first team ever to go out in a World Cup on the fair play points tiebreaker that allowed Japan to go through, which is like the most ridiculous thing ever. (laughs) And it, it seemed like that's just truly unfortunate and not a single African team got out of the group stage in 2018. And so I think Africa's due for a team to make another Ghana style run from 2010. And when you look at the quality that Senegal has, especially up the spine with Mendy and goal, Koulibaly, especially in the central defense, uh, Ghana Gay from PSG, mm-hmm. very good central midfielder, Mane, who can be a winger, but also cut inside. Um, You know, they've got real talent. And, you know, just if they can get to the World Cup, and Egypt's going to be a tough team, but I don't think Egypt has much in the attacking, in in the attack aside from Mohamed Salah. It's kind of frustrating watching Egypt play because they really try and defend a lot. They try and get set pieces, and they're just trying to, get the ball to Salah on the break and hope he does something amazing. And yes, they kept getting through games in this tournament. A lot of zero zeros on penalties to the point where I thought that Egypt had the advantage going into penalties. They had won five straight penalty shootouts. They had gotten through two penalty shootouts in the knockout rounds of this tournament, but their luck ran out. Yeah, I mean, what you just described is a Carlos Quiroz managed team. And uh, Colombia fans ran him out because they couldn't score a goal. They sacked him and they still can't score a goal. But that is not the most entertaining style of play to watch. And so, but I, I mean, there's a reason why he keeps latching on to these major international jobs is because, you know, th- for that style of play, when you're trying to win a tournament, can you keep a couple clean sheets and hope for the best? And that was kind of Egypt's strategy. Um, I, I imagine they probably miss Bob Bradley about now. Um, but, you know, I, I think that 
there should be a little bit more in that team. It's not just Mo Salah. You have uh, Trezeguet who plays for Aston Villa on the other wing who is a decent Premier League player. Like there's there should be more there, but you know that, that's the tactic that they decided to employ, and uh, it, it didn't work out for them in the end. So U.S. men's national team, we obviously just got through a window. Just wanted to mention a couple things with Yanks abroad. Giovanni Reina playing for the first time in about five months for Dortmund this weekend, comes on as a sub, and it's just good to see him back on the field. And I'm sure Greg Berhalter feels really good about that. I'm sure Gio Reyna feels really good about that because when you're that young and you have to sit five months on a a muscle injury, uh, I'm sure that was extremely stressful and frustrating for him. Uh, Not a great result for Dortmund losing, I think it was 5-2 at home to Leverkusen. And really now distance behind Bayern Munich in that Bundesliga race. But we're talking about the U.S. men's national team here. So our focus is on Gio Reyna. Good to see him back on the field. And I'm curious to see, you know, if he gets going here, which he should be able to do at club level, how Greg Berhalter might use him in that March window. You'd have to think if he's at full strength that uh, he would be getting playing time during those very important games coming up. And then Jordan Pifak, two more goals for young boys in the Swiss League. And I know it's the Swiss League, but it's 18 goals in all competitions on the season now for Pifak, including two, by the way, in Champions League against Manchester United and Atalanta. So it's not like he's just been scoring goals against Swiss League teams. This is a guy who hasn't been called into the U.S. roster since the first window of qualifiers and he hasn't been hurt this is purely the choice of greg berhalter at a time in the last several windows when u.s center forwards have not been scoring have generally not been playing that great and do you think finally we might see pfock back with the u.s in march i don't know and and i think the answer that i'm going to give might be slightly worrying when you're talking about greg berhalter because I think he hasn't picked him because of his performances in the national team and he might not work in the national team setup. And that's a similar answer that I gave to why John Brooks isn't in the team. Now, I think that's a bit more merited than what we're talking about here at PFOC, but I believe the game that he started, if I remember correctly, I'll look it up here as we're talking, was the game at home against Canada that finished in a 1-1 yep. draw, and PFOC was pretty starved for the game. Yeah, he came out as a sub in the first game against El Salvador. He started against Canada. and has played for the U.S. since. And... That's a pretty harsh reading of the situation because, number one, other strikers have come in and struggled. And number two, it might be a situation where PFOC might not work in the system, but maybe it's the system that needs to change. And maybe there needs to be more crosses and it might be more reliant on physical play rather than, you know, it seems like Greg Berhalter prefers the Jesus Ferreira style of center forward as opposed to the Jordan PFOC style of center forward. And so is, is that a problem? Is that something that needs to be worked out? And... I would say probably is like I, I do think you want Jordan Pifuck involved in this team, or at least you know players that are in goal-scoring form, because there are precious few guys right now that are in the attack that are in goal-scoring form for their clubs. In terms of at a pretty high level right now, it's McKenney, it's Pifuck, and it's not a ton else. I just don't think Pifuck got much of a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the opportunities, one starting game in in qualifying did have a, a really important goal in the nation's league semifinals against honduras to get the u.s to that final has had played pretty well in friendlies before that and this is a guy scoring goals in champions league against man united and atalanta and it's not like the u.s has this plethora of options at center forward who are doing things like that so i'm actually pretty mystified at this point. And if he's not involved in March, I think that's just ridiculous. So we'll see if uh, if PFOC gets a call. We'll see how Josh Sargent continues to do. I mean, he had one good game in the Premier League in terms of goals produced. He's been playing okay in other games lately, and, and we'll see if he can stake a claim as well. Because as we've talked about during the window, it's it's a position where we still don't know who the starter is going to be. We don't know you know, what kind of answers are going to be there moving forward. So um, let's talk a little bit about Italy, which has the best race of any of the top European leagues. And that race got even closer over this weekend with league leader Inter losing at home, I guess home, uh, they were the home team, to Milan. 
Um, and it seemed like Inter was in control of this game. And then in four minutes in the second half, Olivier Giroud from Milan scores two goals. The second one was just an amazing first touch. And Milan gets three points, and suddenly they're very much in the thick of this, uh, as is Napoli, which won over the weekend, as is Juventus now, moving into fourth place. We'll talk about them in a second. But I find, I find myself this weekend pretty excited about the Italian league, which if I'm admitting it, I don't watch a ton of every week. I watch some. I'm up to date on what's happening. But this is a great title race. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear, even based off of the performance and a loss, that Inter is the best team. But they're, all the other sides are in with a shout. And you look at the way that Milan played in that match, they come back from kind of being up against it for 60, 65 minutes, and Inter just couldn't put away the chances that would allow them to have kind of run away with that. And it's kind of remarkable, the sources that, that AC Milan turned to for scoring goals. Olivier Giroud, a player who was kind of out in the cold even in Milan, it always seems like his, his arc is fascinating because I followed a bit him at Chelsea because it was in the era where I was podcasting for the club. And you look at his time at Arsenal. It seems like there are moments where he is not even preferred to even make the bench, although in Italy they have the extended benches. But it just it sometimes goes completely out of the fold. It's because he's a hot and cold goal, goal scorer. He is more of a player that helps you in link-up play and in other areas, but he's not really a knock-him-dead 20, 25 goals a season goal scorer. You have to appreciate his game, and it seems like because it waxes and wanes in that position – that managers prefer to play other players. But I think there's another version of Olivier Giroud's career where a manager takes him who really appreciates him and puts him at a really high level, and he has a completely different arc than the one he has now, which is kind of second or third striker that can play really an outsized role. But he comes up with two big goals in that one, and now, as you mentioned, title race in Italy. And if you're kind of starting every weekend, all right, which league am I going to watch? You'd probably right now start with Italy and then go from there in terms of which which of the fixtures. And because of the nature of the league, there's like six teams now that kind of matter. And so you look at any game that involves Inter, AC Milan, even Roma at times just because they're a big club, Lazio and Napoli and Atalanta. And all of a sudden you have six or seven clubs and two of them are bound to play each other over the course of a weekend. So there's always a big game. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably where you're starting in terms of games to watch. Speaking of which, Juventus with wins 2-0 over crosstown rival Torino. And the standout fact here is that the two goals are scored by two new signings, Dusan Vlahovic and Denis Zakaria. Zakaria, I got to get this right. Um, <laughs> but like, that's a great start. You can't imagine a better start for your, your big signings. You know, Juve had this terrific January window. We're not used to seeing big-time goal scorers like Vlahovic move in January like this. And now you have Juve. They're in fourth place. They're in the top four. They've got time to, I think, not just finish in the top four, but to, to challenge to win the league. And you look at Vlahovic, I find it really fascinating that not only did he leave in that window, but it was Juventus that stepped up and paid for him because it's been, I think, since Cristiano Ronaldo, since they stepped up and paid a big fee for someone who's going to come in and, and change their team. And it really seemed like he was going to go to one of the Premier League giants because he had a really good start to the season at Fiorentina. I think scored 16 goals in the first half of the season. And then... It was, you know, in January. Where is he going to go? Is Fiorentina one going to be able to hang on to him? And if so, who do they sell him to? And it ends up being Juventus that pays the money. And it's really important that he hits the ground running and that Juventus again becomes a club. I think they kind of strayed from their model, which was in some ways be the Bayern of Italy. Hoover up all the talent from all the other top teams so that you're weakening your opponents and you're just consistently winning winning league titles. And Juventus kind of got away from it to go chase the Ronaldo thing, which didn't work. I mean, they, they did win a couple of Scudettos, but uh, it, it didn't really work to, to the way that they wanted to, which is winning the Champions League. And then chasing all these free transfers, and all of a sudden you're paying tons of money in salary to players like Aaron Ramsey and Adrian Rabio and these guys that did not work for you. So... If they can get back to their model of being the dominant team in Italy that's taking up all the best players, um, it's off to a great start with Vlahovic getting that, that goal uh, first time. And all of a sudden, 
you know, Juventus still have some some ground to make up, but again, there's that fear factor. There's that you don't want to go one nil down to them. You don't want to play them right now. They're in a good run of form, and that's a far cry from the Juventus that really I think we saw hit their nadir in the Champions League when they got hammered by Chelsea. I think it was four nil, and they were played off the park that day. And you're like, what has happened to Juventus? And they, they've bounced back well. And I think Max Allegri has that kind of institutional knowledge to know how to lift back up that team. Yeah, and I'm also excited just as someone who follows the U.S. that Weston McKennie's in such great form is going to be a part of this run, I think, for Juventus in a major way. He only got in at the end of this game today, but he also didn't get back to the club until, I think, Friday, Friday or Saturday. I mean, like, because I was on McKenney's flight from Minnesota to Newark, along with Serginio Dest, and then um, McKenney posted on his Insta that he got stuck in New York on Thursday night. So if that was the case, he probably couldn't fly out until Friday, which means not getting back to Europe until Saturday. So good for him that he even got on the field. Death got on the field for Barcelona late in the game too, by the way, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, yeah, I, I, like you're right. It's, it's almost as if Syria A right now feels like the Premier League has in the past where there's like a top six and every weekend, there's going to be at least one or two games between teams in that top six, but all of them still have a shot at the title. And so that's exciting in a way that the Premier League race right now just isn't, even though Liverpool still has an outside shot to catch Man City. Um, speaking of England, let's talk FA Cup. I know you're a big FA Cup guy. It's been a good FA Cup, including this weekend. And what stood out to you the most about this FA Cup weekend? Well, I would say it starts off with a great game on Friday night with Manchester United and Middlesbrough. I have no idea how Manchester United not only didn't win, but didn't win like 11-0. Like they had so many chances. Cristiano Ronaldo missed a penalty. Bruno Fernandes missed an absolute sitter. Cristiano Ronaldo had chances to add to their lead. I thought Manchester United was going to run away with it. And then you, and then you figure well, the, the game goes to extra time, then it goes to penalties, and uh, then you know Middlesbrough go on to win it. And so more pressure heaped on to Ralph Reinick. So that's how you start it. And then on the Saturday morning, you had two great games with a kind of lower league, uh, you know, upstarts having a chance to go and, and have a big occasion. So for Kidderminster Harriers from the sixth tier, it was hosting West Ham. They were one nil up. And I was actually, I was listening to the television commentaries. So I was driving somewhere and, you know, John Champion is like, this is going to happen. Like it's like him and Taylor Tolman had kind of decided this is going to happen <laughs> for, for Kidderminster Harriers because West Ham were not offering much. Then Declan Rice scores a late goal in regular time and then in extra time Jared Bowen scores a goal in second in the second half stoppage time of extra time it was like 121 minutes in so uh, incredible occasions there and Kidderminster unfortunately couldn't pull off the cup set and then you have Plymouth Argyle taking Chelsea uh, to extra time as well so you had those kinds of you know score lines you're like all right the exciting thing that you know you watch this competition for is happening and it didn't really happen until Boreham Wood in the last game of the weekend got a win away at Bournemouth, who are the side, you know, one of the co-favorites probably right now for promotion along with Fulham. Uh, they, I, We fielded something of a weekend team, but there were still some recognizable players out there, and Boreham Wood wins away from home. So you have a team that's in the fifth tier moving into the fifth into the fifth round of the Cup. So uh, you have you have those stories going on, which are great. It, uh, Man City and Fulham had a, had a good start to their game. There was like three goals in the first 15 minutes of that one, including Fulham scoring in the first five minutes. So uh, I, I think it's it's what you want out of an FA Cup weekend, and uh, people were probably glued to ESPN Plus throughout. Yeah, no, I, I caught a few things this weekend. There's just so much, but uh, it's pretty cool also that every game is on ESPN Plus because even not that long ago, it was really hard to see that many FA Cup games in the U.S. I know it's still that way in England because <laughs> yeah. they try and incentivize people going to the grounds. And, and and fans get annoyed because they always put Manchester United on TV. That's like that's like the trope. It's like, oh, well, death taxes and Manchester United on TV, which I think they were on the Friday night. But yeah, I mean, I remember and 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 like I felt bad for the TV because it used to be Fox that had the had the FA Cup, and they had to pick a game and hope that that was the game that was entertaining. Yeah. And like you can't, how, how are you going to know which one is the one that's going to pop? And so that's why it's cool with the ESPN Plus. You just kind of flick to the one that's exciting. That's where streaming, I think, really does help mm -hmm. if you can get all the games and then have a choice of the games that are the most exciting ones the only thing that they really need and espn 
Plus did, a, I think, a good job devoting resources this weekend to having studio people, to having uh, reporters on the ground at different games. Our friend Alexis Nunez, I think, was at two games in one day on Saturday in London and then at Liverpool, I think, on Sunday. So um, they're definitely putting her to work. But like... You know, it's 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 good to see. Like like for a while there, ESPN wasn't doing as much of that stuff with ESPN Plus. Like I, I was watching the Dortmund Leverkusen game today. They had Archie Rintut and Jan Age Fjortoft on the field. They had studio. Um, the Barcelona Atletico Madrid game. Um, you know, they had Sid Lowe and Gemma Soler on the field there talking to the studio as well. So like. I'm encouraged by that. And also I should say, like made the biggest investment of the weekend was Paramount Plus sending their entire talent crew to Milan for the Derby. And, you know, that that's an investment. And we've seen like the the gold standard for that over the years has been NBC in the Premier League and having Arlo White and whoever's working with him on site every week. Mm-hmm. But still, like I, I think this is a good moment for soccer on TV in the United States. And I just wanted to mention that even though I hadn't planned to. Well, and I, I agree with you. I, I do want to make a point about that just because in other countries, that's not that foreign. Like zone has been a primary rights holder in a lot of countries and they send their talent places. And the fact that now, like I think because our, our view of, of broadcasting sports has been so television-focused, like linear television, that that's what gets resources. And then streaming, I remember when ESPN 360 streamed, like, the Confederations Cup in 2009, and it was just like, you just put it on the internet, and it was just the game. It was the world feed, it was the game, halftime was nothing, the game, and then that was it. And so I think it took a while for that mentality to change, and I, I love the fact that the competition has now made coverage that much better because like you said it was NBC who not only did that with their NBCSN product but then basically said we're going to do the same thing even if the game is on Peacock and then Paramount Plus has come in and done a ton with obviously with Champions League and now with Serie A and I think ESPN has really stepped their game up and particularly in this season as they got La Liga I think they kind of recognize all right we need to put studio coverage around all of our products even if they're all streaming because La Liga is such a big deal that we have to treat this properly and they are and I, I really enjoy just as a viewer I get, I get to flip on games and Kay Murray's in the studio at seven in the morning with you know Kidderminster Harriers and and West Ham and and they've got a broadcast team doing that uh, presumably off too from Britain. Crystal, I I think that's it's great. Like it's just a fun way to enjoy all the games. I do think, in fairness, I should have some brickbats here for B in Sports and the way they presented the Afcon or didn't present because, frankly, it was kind of disgraceful. Because for the final, it wasn't on any of the B in the main B in Sports channels. So if you have cable and you're not getting it, that was always the case on weekends during the tournament where they would be showing. French League and even Turkish League games instead. And then, yes, you could get it on free TV on BN Connect and BN Extra, but they were putting ads on during the gameplay. And when you compare that to the way the Euros are presented in the US, it's night and day. And or even the Copa America or the Gold Cup. It's it's just it's absolutely embarrassing and I really hope that somebody other than BN has the Africa Cup of Nations, which is actually coming back again next year, uh, from Ivory Coast, because this one had been delayed a year. So I know that that contract is currently held by BN and I hope that they have someone come in and get it because they can't it's just it was awful. Like it 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 deserves so much more respect. But wanted to get that off my chest. I want to talk about Barcelona 4, Atletico Madrid 2, because it was a really interesting game. Um, Atleti gets the early goal, but then we see what I would say is the closest thing to traditional Barcelona men's soccer that you know, under Xavi that we've seen to this point. And I think this could be a big moment. We'll see if it is. It's interesting to me that Two of the goals today were scored by Dani Alves and Jordi Alba, who were there a decade ago. But it was it was just a pretty remarkable game that they end up winning. Uh, Alves does the trifecta, scores a great goal, assist, straight red card, and gets sent off. <laughs> and uh, and Adama Traore, I thought, 
had a very positive game for a new arrival. Aubameyang, another new arrival, comes on in the second half. And, you know, Atleti's got their own issues, right? Where we're hearing lots of talk that this may be Simeone's last season, that the champions from last year aren't what they were, haven't been. And so there's just a lot going on there. Yeah, so I want to start with the Barcelona aspect of things just because you look at the way that they've come out of the transfer window, and all of a sudden there's some conversation about Barcelona. I mean, they're already in the Champions League places, so that for them is a must. They must be in the Champions League next year. But all of a sudden you see a measure of strength, and the one thing that this kind of transitional period has allowed them to to do is bring through younger players, and it seems like they might have like a generational midfield that they've kind of birthed from this era. When you look at Gavi, when you look at uh, Pedri, and when you look at you know some of the guys that they've brought through, and that's exciting for them. The fact that they found those guys because you know because of their situation, and maybe that's kind of like the next foundational pieces. They really didn't find that many foundational pieces in that kind of post Pep era where they were still winning, they were still doing well in Champions League and winning league titles, but that next generation of guys didn't really come through, and maybe this period has allowed them to find that next generation of guys, and then you give them some threats. Even though Adama Traore is a flawed player, you know the threat that he offers. Ferran Torres is a player that's still developing, but you know they can offer threat, whereas it just seemed like that forward line, either due to injury or because there just isn't that much dynamism in it, they needed to find that measure of threat, and it looks like they have now. And now you might look forward to watching Barcelona again, and maybe they can turn on the style points, and maybe it won't be with 37-year-old Dani Alves for much longer, but, uh, you know, like, there's still players. And the, we, we, we didn't see Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang today, and so, you know, like, there's a chance that this gets even better. A couple things I'd say. I still don't know where Barcelona got the money to make the transfers they did in January. I don't. But also, Serginho Dest, my air airplane buddy um, <laughs> from the other day. Good to see him get on this game, but like he ended up not moving on loan anywhere in the January window because there had been talk about, oh, he might go to Chelsea, might go somewhere else. Uh, and so he's there for at least the next several months. And I hope he does get opportunities on the field, not just because the US needs him, but just for his own sake. You know, he's a young guy, still very early in his career. And he's not a finished player yet by any means, but he does bring something to the table. And I hope he can try and revive himself at Barcelona. I just don't know totally where Xavi is on him, how much he trusts him at this point. How, you know, has he come close to writing him off? I don't know. I also think that that is going to have some ups and downs because I imagine Barcelona are not going to have a settled 11 for very long just because of the they're, they're going to continue to try and find answers and balance. And I imagine Dest will have his chance. I think Xavi just probably needed one or two guys that he can trust in every line that he knows that they're going to do. He knows that they can operate the system, and almost in a way, Dani Alves can be a transitional. Maybe maybe he doesn't rate Serginho Dest, and that's entirely possible, and he can find another club where he is rated. But I, I do think that maybe there's a chance for Dest to kind of absorb what it is that Dani Alves does so that he can carry it into the next era. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's good that he's playing. Dani Alves and taking a red card will miss at least one match, so uh, he'll have a chance to step in there and, and play some more. But uh, I feel like he's going to have to earn it with some strong performances because I would imagine at the moment Xavi would rather play Dani Alves at right back, as stunning as that is to hear in the year of our Lord 2022. I want to talk about one more thing before we get to an interview with Ashley Hatch of the U.S. women's national team which is a good interview, so I think you'll enjoy sticking around for that one. Let's talk U.S. women's national team because Ashley Hatch is on the new roster that just came out for the She Believes Cup. Some big names are not. No Alex Morgan, no Megan Rapino, no Kristen Press. Um, and it was interesting to see Vlad Randonovsky be asked about this and what he said. And he's certainly in the mode right now of trying to figure out which of the younger group of players might emerge and become a reliable player, reliable potential starter for him. And so he's not writing off these other players, but he also phrased it interestingly. He was kind of like, I'm not calling in Mia Hamm or Julie Foudy anymore. And sort of <laughs> lumping Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, and Kristen Frass into the Mia Ham group, harsh. which is pretty harsh when you think about it. Um, 
And so I'm, I'm interested to see how those quotes resonate with some of those players um, and, and where they do go from here. But I also don't think Alex Morgan or Kristen Press especially are in a position to have their days with the national team be done yet. I agree. I think that they certainly have earned a bit more. They're, they're not old enough to where you go, all right, it's, it's time for them to go. But I do wonder if maybe with those comments, Vladko Andonovsky is, is trying to lay the groundwork for eventually, I'm going to have to rip this Band-Aid off and move into an entirely different era. And I, I, I'm not sure you can do that gradually. And there is certainly risk in it because Germany seemed like they were on their way to doing that. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for Yogi Love. He eventually brought some of those players like Jerome Boateng and and uh, Thomas Muller back in. But I, I think he, the, the story goes that he just showed up at Bayern one day. It was like, hey, you guys are out. And it was, it was time to bring through a new generation of guys. But that new generation didn't really step up and fill the void. And that would be the risk if you're Vlatko Andonovsky is you might be signaling that, you know, maybe, you know, those players don't love to hear that. Maybe those players are going to get upset. And it's on the younger players now to fill that gap. But that's a really tough thing to handle. And it takes a certain kind of character to maybe keep some of those players on side if you need them. But I think maybe he might view his remit right now as to let's let's get on with the new era of U.S. women's national team soccer because it has been the same characters for I mean, as long as I can remember, since 2012, since the London Olympics, I think you can say it's basically been the same team. I, I'd almost be curious to compare the lineups from like the gold medal game in 2012 to you know the bronze medal game in 2021, like how similar those two teams are. And so, wh- is it time for regime change? I I think it. I think that this might be a signal of it. Now, it could just be she believes Cup in an off year, but I I think it does carry some significance. Yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. I mean, I, I've sort of always assumed that like Morgan and Press would be around for the World Cup next year, but uh, that's not a, a 100% guaranteed statement, I think, at this point, which will make this team even more interesting to cover. But um, in any case, we've got an interesting interview coming up to talk about some of that with Ashley Hatch. Witty, as always, thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Ashley Hatch. Our guest now just got named to the U.S. women's national team roster for the She Believes Cup and recently scored her first two goals for the senior national team. Ashley Hatch is also a reigning NWSL champion with the Washington Spirit and the Golden Boot winner for the league. Ashley, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Lots to talk about here, but let's start with the national team. You took advantage of your chance in Australia, scored a couple goals. Now you're back. What has Vladko Andonovsky, the coach, told you about what he wants from you and the opportunity that you have here? Um, I mean, even before the Australia camp, I was going in and out of camp and getting the feedback that they gave me the most was just being consistent and being able to take risks in the final third, take people on 1v1, just kind of be that relentless attacker. Um, And so I kind of, you know, took that into this year, took it to heart and definitely worked on it. And so I knew that the opportunities of the national team don't come easily. So I knew that I had to take advantage of that. And I'm super (laughs) happy with how that went in Australia. And now it's just continuing to be more consistent um, at that level. What are the biggest adjustments for you personally going from club level to training and playing with the national team? Um, I mean, the style of play is a little bit different. I mean, like we have two different coaches, different player personnel. So it's just being able to switch from one style to the next. Um, I mean, the national team environment is as intense and as competitive (laughs) as any environment can get. So it's really fun. And I don't know, yeah, just being able to execute the game plan and execute what um, Vlatko is wanting us to do as as a team and as individuals. There were several big names not on this U.S. roster, including Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, Kristen Press. Do you get the sense that just about everyone is on square one now that a new phase has begun looking ahead to next year's World Cup? I mean, I'd like to think so. Um, I mean, the, all those players that you just named are great players and they've accomplished so much. So like, 
I mean, I'm really looking forward to getting the opportunity to, you know, if they do get integrated back into camp or whatever it is, um, being able to compete against them, I guess you could say, for a spot on the national team. I mean, me and a lot of the younger players, we've looked up to these players for so long. um, And now we're kind of in the position to compete against them for the beloved spot on the national team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would like to say, like, I hope that it's, you know, a sign of a new wave, but it's not going to be easy to kick out <laughs> the old the old uh, veterans. So we'll see how it goes. In the NWSL, there is so much happening already, and the season hasn't even started. First off, congratulations on getting a labor deal done with the league, so there will be no work stoppage. When you look at the new CBA... What are the things in there that you're most excited about? Um, I mean, being able to have more control on the type of fields that we play on, um, no more baseball fields, um, that's huge. Um, also, like working towards, you know, free agency, actually like having that in the conversation and having it be a possibility um, in the coming years, um, increasing salaries. Also, like um, one thing that we that was in there is, you know, having nursing rooms for mothers, like simple things that I feel like a lot of people don't think about, um, but that are huge. I mean, I uh, played with Shana Matthews at the Washington Spirit, and I remember that was a struggle for her, um, just being able to find the privacy to do that kind of stuff as a mother. And um, so I think like people like her definitely, you know, had a voice in this and like are paving the way to make soccer um, a job that mothers can continue to do. Because I think so many um, mothers have stopped playing because it's it's hard enough to be just a player and play sometimes in the league, but let alone to be a mother in this league. It's I don't know how they do it. <laughs> so uh, simple things like that that people don't think of, I think, are huge. So I'm super happy and excited about it. So your team, the Washington Spirit, won a league title last year with a great run to finish the season. Even as so much other stuff was happening with the people who have run the club, how were you able to continue to play great soccer during all that? I think we all just kind of had to lean into each other. I mean, because there was so much chaos like going on around us, we the only thing, the only option we had was to lean into each other and like the only freedom and place of self-expression, I feel like, was on the field. Um, and so I feel like we did that really well as a team. And I don't, I'm just super proud of all my teammates and um, all the adversity that we were able to overcome. I feel like people hear about it and they, you know, they read about it, but I don't think anyone will truly like understand what we had to go through as a team last year. So we had Molly Hensley Clancy from the Washington Post on my podcast uh, to talk about her reporting. And she did so much of it um, that really showed a light on on everything you're talking about that you all had to deal with there's the ownership stuff too i know the spirit players have been publicly supportive of michelle kang taking control of the team it looks like we may be headed in that direction finally it's not a done deal yet though what's your sense as a player of everything i'm frustrated with how long this saga I guess you could say has gone on uh, especially since us players the ones that kind of getting the brunt of it kind of getting thrown around we're trying to figure out where to live where we're gonna train like that was the story all last year and we're coming into it again this year um, not having an owner to you know kind of lead us and you know push us in the right dress direction for like logistics and stuff like that um, I mean Michelle King I think would be a great um, owner. I think she's, you know, shown that she's invested. <laughs> the fact that she's still around kind of fighting for us is great. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I, I'd be happy with anyone who, you know, is willing to step up and, and give us the time and attention that I think that our team deserves. So I hope that we're able to come to a conclusion here soon. <laughs> yeah, I can totally imagine that. I mean, just we're speaking on Friday. The podcast is coming out Monday. Right now, what are some of the things that players on your team are dealing with logistics-wise heading into this new season? So right now we're training at the St. James. It's a really nice facility, um, but we're still, most of the team is living in Ashburn. So like we're still having to deal with the commute. We have new girls here, but they're staying in hotels because we can't move them into apartments yet because we don't know exactly where we're going to be training after Florida. It looks like it's going to be Episcopal, which is a great facility. 
um, but that's still 45 minutes away from Ashburn where the apartments are. Um, and it just makes the long commute just makes for a longer day. And it's just hard on our bodies to be sitting in the car that long. Um, and then also not having a solid, you know, training room a facility. I mean, St. James is great, but we um, are going to have to go like back and forth from St. James to Episcopal probably. So it's just like, there's a lot of unknowns. I know some people are trying to like figure out if they want to move. My husband and I, we just moved to Fairfax kind of blindly hoping that it'd be a little bit closer to the direction wherever we end up. <laughs> so it's kind of like making, you know, it's hard for us to make decisions, life decisions on where we're going to be. Um, but that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. Washington Spirit, get this done and let your players <laughs> figure this stuff out. They shouldn't be having to deal with all this uh, for as long as they have and continuing to. That's absolutely amazing. But thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah. You've been a player rep for your team. You know, how have you gone about trying to support your teammates through the ownership crisis, through the abuse situation with former coach Richie Burke? Yeah, um, I think the most important job of the player rep is just to make yourself available for your teammates um, if they have any questions or if they just need some clarification. Um, we're lucky enough to have Tori Houston on our team <laughs> who uh, played a huge part in the Players Association. So she also helps a ton as well. Um, but I remember like when we, you know, first heard the news of the coaching change and then all the allegations were coming out. I think um, everyone kind of dealt with things differently. Like some people like to talk about it. Some people don't. Um, so I think it was just, you know, making like for me, just making myself available, um, whether people wanted to talk or not to talk. And um, I think that's just kind of how all of us operated through it all is like, if you want to talk about it, great, we're here for you. If you don't, that's okay. And not pushing anybody in any certain direction. Um, and I think that helped us a ton, like grow closer together as people and teammates, and then also play better on the field. From a soccer perspective, how do you feel about your chances to repeat? I mean, I think they're great, <laughs> but uh, I also know like all the hard work that it took last year. So I know that it's definitely not going to be easy. Um, we're, you know, integrating new players. We have new challenges this year. You know, we have a lot of girls um, getting called up to the national team, not, not even just the U.S. Like we have Jamaica, Canada, like we have Julia's on Sweden. So like we have a lot of international players, which is great because it means we have quality footballers on our team. Um, but that also means that we'll be gone a lot um, and there'll be a lot of interchange. So I think um, just getting everyone on the same page, getting everyone, you know, excited and ready to go for whenever their opportunity presents itself. Um, I think that's kind of like the biggest challenge that we're going to have um, in finding that rhythm. It's a long season. <laughs> so uh, I definitely think we can do it, but I definitely know it won't be easy. You know, one of the biggest stories league-wide in the NWSL heading into the new season is the two new teams in California, Angel City and San Diego. And it looks to me like the rosters they're building there and have built are, are pretty impressive. And, and these may be better than your typical expansion teams in the league. From where you are, what do you think is a, is a rival team about what's happening with those teams out there? Um, I think what's happening is great. I think, like you said, in the past, we've had like one expansion team and it's kind of like the expectation is, oh, well, it's their first year. It's going to take them a while to you know figure things out. But I, I don't think that's the case with LA and San Diego. I mean, if you look at their roster, I mean, they both have some of our previous players who were definitely powerhouses for us. So, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going into those games and taking them seriously. And I'm excited that, you know, it's going to be competitive. And I think it's great for the league because, I mean, if we can have two expansion teams this year and then be successful teams like hopefully that's a sign that we can continue to keep growing year by year. You've obviously been this tremendously important player for the spirit. You're the golden boot winner. Part of the news in this past week is one of your teammates, Trinity Robin, just signed a new contract, uh, four years, $1.1 million, the kind of money we're not used to seeing that often in the <laughs> NWSL. What, what are your thoughts on that? What's she like to play with? Um, I mean, my thoughts are wow, congrats, Trin. <laughs> I hope you're I, I hope you're buying us all dinner next time we go out. <laughs> um, but I mean it's it's definitely exciting. It's it's exciting for her. I think that I mean Trin's a great player. She's got I think the most exciting part about playing with her is she's only gonna continue to go up from here. She's only gonna continue to get better. 
Uh, I hope I can, you know, help her along that way and be a small part of that. Um, I know that when I was a rookie, like all the players around me definitely helped me get to where I am today. So yeah, I'm just excited to continue to develop that relationship with her on the field and continue to score goals and win games with her. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's exciting. So when I look ahead, this year's a big year. It's obviously a chance to defend your NWSL title. Women's World Cup qualifying is this July. I don't know if they've announced the dates officially yet, but it's a little earlier than it usually is. And that's also qualifying for the 2024 Olympics. So that's a big tournament for the U.S. When you look at the opportunity ahead here, what are your hopes for how much you'll play potentially with the U.S. women's national team? I mean, my hopes are that I'll play every single minute, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely know it's it's not an easy task. And I've been, you know, in and out for so long that like, I mean, I know last year I, I wasn't on the Olympic team, but I was slowly kind of in and out. And I, I had hopes of being on the Olympic team, but obviously, you know, as the roster became more and more finalized and I wasn't being invited um, to those camps, I knew it wasn't a possibility. So um, I think for me, I'm just going to keep, you know, grinding every camp, take it camp by camp and just hope that whatever my performance is at that camp and is going to be good enough to invite me to the next one and into the next one. So that's kind of like what my focus is now, but like I said, it's a competitive and really hard team to to get a spot on. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I mean, you're 26, so you're not young, young. And I realize this is all relative, right? Uh, yeah. But like, <laughs> but you're not in your 30s. At the same time, did you ever feel at a certain point that your national team chance had passed you by? I think the thought has definitely like crossed my mind I mean like I I mean I've had the thought before like dang like did I miss the wave like I was too young for like you know when all the older girls were in there and then now this younger wave is coming in and I'm not really considered part of like the young young wave so like the thought definitely like crossed my mind for like a second <laughs> but you know the competitive um person in me like I was I mean still playing in the enemy cell still gonna give it all I got and I, you know, from previous experiences, the more success you have in the league, um, the more opportunities you have at the international level. So um, I didn't like, yeah, I crossed my mind for one second, but it didn't stay for very long. Ashley Hatch is the reigning golden boot winner in the NWSL and NWSL champion. And she's part of the U.S. women's national team. Ashley, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Ashley Hatch as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. 